Welcome to the Unconventional RD Podcast, where we inspire dietitians to think outside of the traditional employment box and create their own unconventional income streams. We'll talk all things online business to help you start, grow, and scale your own digital empire. Why, hello there. Last week was pretty wild with Black Friday slash Cyber Monday stuff happening, so I didn't really get a chance to adequately share and promote the previous week's episode about launching a nonprofit, so that's why I didn't release anything new last Monday. And in case you were wondering, my last chance Black Friday slash Cyber Monday sale went freaking amazing. There weren't any discounts on my offerings, but it was the last chance to enroll at the current prices before I revamp everything for 2021. And in the month of November, I had over 70 people join my courses and I made $64,500 in course sales. Like, what? (laughs) Like, that is far and away my best month ever in the history of my business. Um, And that's, I even actually made more money than that from other revenue streams and ended up having like a 70K month, which is absolutely insane. But um, of course, that's not all profit. I also paid, you know, roughly $11,000 in affiliate commissions to my affiliates, which are people who have signed up to promote my course and they earn 50% commission on any successful referrals. Uh, And I also had, of course, my regular tech-related expenses for running the website um, and hosting the videos for the courses and all that. But that's only like maybe a couple hundred hundred dollars a month anyway. And I did not spend anything on ads. So this was all organic sales made via my Facebook group, my email list, and word of mouth via my affiliates. So the net profit for the launch was just over $50,000 for the month. Of course, I still have to pay taxes on that, but that is so freaking wild. Like that is, again, my best month ever in the unconventional RD business. And I celebrated by freaking paying off my credit card debt that had been looming over my head for the last six years from, you know, my days back in grad school and my first few years as a dietitian. There were some really lean months as a budding entrepreneur where I had to dip into my credit card to survive. And that had been kind of hanging over my head for quite some time. And it's now officially gone. So it's like such a light feeling. Um, So anyway, I just wanted to update you guys with how everything went. Uh, Maybe in some future episodes, I'll dive into the strategy of what I did um, during that launch and why I think it went well. But For today, I'm here to talk to you about digital marketing trends to watch in 2021. So I've put together seven things that have kind of been on my mind and that I believe you should watch for or implement on in 2021. So without further ado, let's dive into those seven digital marketing trends to watch in 2021. Trend number one, transitioning to a cookie-less world. And you're probably like, what? Cookies? What does this have to do with digital marketing? But cookies are actually something that's used in the digital marketing world. And a specific type of cookie known as a third-party cookie is basically going away for all of the main internet browsers by 2022, which means preparing for this change is probably going to be a big part of 2021. And Safari and Firefox browsers have already phased out third-party cookies, but why I'm mentioning this as a trend for 2021 is because Google Chrome, which is like the most popularly used browser, is also going to be phasing out third-party cookies by the end of the year. 
So let's start by defining what cookies are. Google's definition is, a cookie is a small piece of text sent to your browser by a website you visit. It helps the website remember information about your visit, which can make it easier to visit the site again and the site more useful to you. So for example, we use cookies to remember your preferred language, to make the ads you see more relevant to you, to count how many visitors we receive to a page, to help you sign up for our services, to protect your data, or to remember your ad settings. So those are all the ways that Google uses cookies. And cookies is a broad term. So again, it's just a small piece of text that gets sent to your browser, so whatever you're looking at a website through, probably Google Chrome or Safari or Firefox, one of those things, and it gets stored by your browser and kind of like remembers you. And there's different types of cookies. There's first-party cookies and there's third-party cookies. And third-party cookies are the ones that are kind of going away in the future. And so let's dive into the difference between those two things so you can really understand how this might impact you and your business and your revenue, most importantly. So again, cookies are used to track users' behavior, essentially, but first-party cookies are created and stored by you, the website owner, so your own website is generating first-party cookies, whereas third-party cookies are created and stored by external sites that have some sort of script or tag on your site. So for example, a first-party cookie might be used when someone's logging into a website. Uh, There will be a cookie placed by that website in your browser, so it will remember your login info so you don't have to re-log in every single time you visit the website or add something to your shopping cart or whatever. Uh, A third-party cookie, for example, might be used in the context of advertising scripts. So if there's an ad on the website that you're visiting, that ad network might be placing a cookie to kind of track your behavior so they can serve you similar ads later on. So those are the cookies that are kind of in question coming up. So obviously this is going to impact digital advertising. It's going to have an impact on display ads on websites, you know, so ads shown shown in content through Google AdSense, ad networks like Mediavine or AdThrive. It might affect paid ads in the sense that it will be more difficult to retarget people based on their behavior if you're not as easily able to track their behavior. And it might impact affiliate marketing because affiliate links use tracking cookies. Um, And, you know, I'll talk about this in a second. There's some workarounds there, but just FYI, you might want to double check and make sure that your whatever you know affiliate marketing platform you're using is compliant with like the future wave of affiliate marketing and isn't relying on these soon to be antiquated third-party cookie solutions. So what is going to happen if we can't track people's behavior? Like that basically means that ad companies are going to have a disadvantage for the ads they're showing you because right now they basically know like what websites you've visited and what you've looked at on the internet uh, so that then they can show you ads based on things they know that you're interested in and that leads to better kind of return on investment for the companies buying the ads so if that gets taken away uh, companies may not want to spend as much on ads and that could hurt publishers, so bloggers essentially, who are putting those ads on their website. They might not be able to get as as much money per view essentially if it's not as targeted. So obviously ad networks like Mediavine and AdThrive um, are 
working on this because they don't want their revenue to drop. That would be bad for their business as well. So there's not so much that you need to do as the publisher, just more so like be aware that this is coming and pay attention to what your ad network is doing about it. So some of the creative things I've seen being talked about, uh, there's a move to more cohort-based advertising. So instead of tracking people on an individual identifiable uh track like using an individual cookie and tracking that individual person's behavior and serving that individual an ad based on that behavior uh it's more uh de-identifying that information so you can't track it to any similar singular person but kind of lumping similar people together into cohorts and then advertising to them on a more like anonymous level so you won't be able to like granularly control how often someone sees your ad or stop showing it if that person purchases because you won't know that they purchased Um, but you can kind of potentially advertise to groups of similar people sort of a more generic ad Uh, There's also a move towards contextual advertising, so showing ads based on the content on the page, which is like how ads used to work before we knew how to target based on cookies and pixels and all that. Um, So we might be going back to that route where like if you write a blog post on cookies, (laughs) then maybe, you know, uh, ads for some of the ingredients used in the cookie recipe might show on the page or an ad for baking products or something like that. Um, There's also a possibility to track people with their consent if they have logged in to use a service. So Google, for example, doesn't have to worry so much about this because they track what their users are doing when they're logged in to their Gmail accounts or if they Uh, You know how you can use your Gmail account to log into different websites? Well, then they can track what you're doing on those websites. (laughs) And same thing with Facebook. If you use your Facebook profile to log in to other platforms, they can track what you're doing as well. Um, So the bigger platforms kind of don't have so much to worry about this, um, but smaller uh, companies are trying to kind of... uh, replicate that model, I guess. So there's a move um, in the blogging space to kind of come up with social sharing buttons of sorts where people have to log in to kind of socially share your content or like your content or whatever, um, with the idea being that if this becomes kind of like standard practice in the blogging world and these, uh, these logged in tools are maybe managed by ad networks, then they'll be able to still track your behavior and serve kind of customized ads, but part of logging in would be giving your consent for that to happen. Um, and yeah, there's just those are just a few things. I'm sure there's more possible ways that we'll get around this, um, but I just wanted to mention it as something to be aware of. And just a little more detail, if any of you guys listening are currently with Mediavine, the ad network that I talk about a lot in my courses, Um, They've already publicly mentioned how they're kind of getting around this. Uh, Even all the way back in 2019, they saw this coming. And they are actually partnered with a company called GumGum, which is a contextual intelligence engine. And they use AI to kind of figure out what a piece of content is about. So beyond just like the words on the page, but also looking at 
you know, your your um, alt text on your images, your video captions, things like that, to try to come up with an idea of what the content's about so that advertisers can decide to potentially target that piece of content with relevant ads. And it works really well for like targeting certain holidays or events like back to school and stuff like that. So they're currently using this um, only for, you know, smaller like direct deals with advertisers like they can say oh I we have this piece of content targeted around this holiday or event like do you want to place a special ad here and they'll kind of come up with a separate agreement for those types of highly targeted ads but they're planning on making that capability part of just like the open marketplace for advertisers and hoping that that will help keep you know, the the cost for the, or what advertisers are willing to pay, keep that high so that the company themselves still brings in good revenue and the publishers with the company still make good revenue. So yeah, they their example was, yes, like as a, an advertising company, this is a quote, we can say we have 3,000 food sites and this is a food blog or this is a food article, but to drill down and find more information about where uh, about it is where the AI comes in. So cool, it's a baking article, but is it sweet baking like cookies or is it like baked chicken? Like that's important for potential advertisers to know. So that's what the gum gum tool is going to be doing. Uh, so it will drive this data at scale. And they say that right now at the time of this article that I'm quoting came out, which was pretty recently, Mediavine had about 8,000 websites in their network. So 8,000 different websites on the internet are showing Mediavine ads and making revenue through Mediavine. So they have a good amount of data to work with. Yeah, so, and then again, they're also working on something, a tool called grow.me, which has been met with not as much enthusiasm by the blogger community because it's not really like a great user experience, but their idea is to create uh, a tool where people would have to log in, like I said, to kind of like or share content and then track their data with their consent after they've logged in. Um, So they're trying to roll this out. They're kind of testing it right now. but we'll see how that goes. So I'm not sure if give it like I don't know if there's enough incentive for me to want to like create an account and log in to use a tool like that. I'd have to see. So I, I imagine that multiple companies will try solutions like this. I don't know how well it will go, um, but we'll see. <laughs> So long story short, ad revenue for publishers might drop in 2021 while the industry gets used to all these changes. So, uh, you know, if all of your revenue is dependent on display ads right now, possibly a good time to consider diversifying, maybe bringing in other forms of revenue, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Um, And then affiliate marketing as well typically uses cookies, but if you're with any of the big platforms like ShareASale or Commission Junction, or anything like that, um, they've already addressed this and reached out to their affiliates on the platform. And there's just like some tweaks that the people running their affiliate programs through ShareASale have to make to be compliant. And you can actually check if you log in, if you're an affiliate for people through ShareASale, log into your affiliate account and then look at your merchants. And if you click on the merchant profile, 
And on the right hand side, you see a green check that says, or a green arrow that says um, ITP compliant. That means you're good to go and your affiliate tracking and marketing will not be impacted by these changes. They've already fixed it. So yay, that's great. <laughs> but maybe if you run your own affiliate program or you're, you're not sure if the company that you are working with are com is compliant, which you can always reach out and double check and ask what they're doing. Um, but uh, obviously another workaround that would work without cookies would be using something like affiliate codes, like discount codes, which is already something that's done. Um, it's more commonly used in like audio formats, maybe like podcasts or radio or even Instagram stories. I've seen it where people say like, oh, use this code to get X percent off. And that's really an affiliate code. So that person gets, uh, you know, a percentage of every sale made, for example. So, you know, affiliate platforms are adapting on this. They've seen it coming. They're ready for the most part. Um, and yeah, so there are workarounds that are being put into place. Um, but yeah, that's trend number one. Things will be changing, especially in the advertising and affiliate marketing spaces uh, and paid advertising spaces, which is not really my forte. I haven't really dabbled in paid advertising at all. But since all of those methods use cookies in some capacity, be on the lookout for changes coming up in 2021 for all of those avenues. Trend number two, the importance of multiple revenue streams. So this is going to be doubly important, I think, in 2021 as things like this roll out. So as all of these changes happen in digital revenue streams, uh, it's gonna be even more important to not have all your eggs in one basket. So if you are fully reliant on one digital income stream in your business, that's not totally under your control, like display advertising or affiliate marketing, I would seriously consider sitting down, you know, sometime in December and plotting out how you can diversify your income streams in 2021. So of course, ad revenue and affiliate income are wonderful and many people have thriving businesses based off of those income streams alone, but there is risk involved if all your eggs are in one basket. So for ad revenue, we don't yet know how changing the cookie landscape is going to affect RPMs. So RPMs are revenue per mil, how much you earn per 1,000 views to your site. And there's a good chance they're going to at least fluctuate with all of these changes. And if your current ad revenue is just enough to get you by, you might consider branching out into other ways of monetizing while also still serving your audience. So maybe you create a digital good like paid eBooks, paid webinars, masterclasses, etc. But other opportunities could maybe include sponsored content. Um, I can imagine that if display advertising isn't as effective, that perhaps advertisers would be more willing to work directly uh, because then they would have more control over what's getting seen by who. So that's a good potential pitch opportunity for you if you want to get into more sponsored content. Highlight the fact that they do have more control and you can manually you know, place these ads and create this content to get your interested segment of your audience to buy. Um, maybe dabble in some affiliate marketing as another income stream or something even larger, perhaps like a paid course or a membership site. Although fair warning, courses and membership sites take a lot of work. So I wouldn't dive in unless you really have a solid plan in place on how you're going to implement that without kind of dropping the ball in other areas of your business. Uh, and then if your primary revenue stream is affiliate marketing, 
Um, that's great. You know, some again, some people, that's their whole business model is affiliate marketing. Usually they either have a really large brand or audience that they're leveraging, or maybe they run one or more affiliate sites focused on things like product reviews, tutorials, comparisons, etc. And all of those pieces of content uh, push someone to want to buy something and they include their affiliate links inside that content and make commissions on any sales after someone clicks those links. But affiliate marketing is not 100% in your control either. So hopefully, even within affiliate marketing, you've diversified the platforms that you're an affiliate with. So you could be an affiliate directly with a company who runs their own program. You could be joining programs through platforms like ShareASale or maybe even other kind of marketplaces like Amazon or Walmart, for example. All of those have affiliate programs. Um, But it's not uncommon for affiliates to change their terms or their commission rates or even just shut down their program entirely, which could have a big impact on your business if that's your main income stream. So for example, this year, Amazon cut a lot of their affiliate commission rates. So for example, supplements went from like three point something percent to one percent and took my site from earning over $300 a month in, in Amazon affiliate commissions to just $100 a month overnight. So imagine if that had gone from 3000 to 1000 or 30000 to 10000 Like that could be like potentially devastating for your business, right? So yes, you can typically recover eventually by finding up other opportunities or platforms, but it's still a headache. So along similar lines, um, If you have all your eggs in one basket, no matter what basket that might be, you really should consider branching out and diversifying your income. And just like you should be diversifying your income, if all of your traffic sources or all of your audience is dependent from one stream or coming from one place, definitely make sure that you are capturing them on your email list so that no matter what happens to that platform or place, you still have direct contact with your people and consider diversifying uh, if you have that one traffic source already pretty nailed in. So for example, if you're a blogger and you're focused on Pinterest and that's your number one traffic driver, like that's fabulous, but you are still vulnerable to algorithm changes. So if something happened with Pinterest and they they stopped showing your content really well in their platform, that could be devastating to the number of people coming to your site, the number of people buying through your affiliate links, the number of people visiting your content and earning you ad impressions, uh, all of that. So maybe if that's you, you could consider branching out into another traffic stream like SEO. Hint, hint, my SEO course would be great for that. It'll be opening up again in 2021 at some point. Um, If you are somebody who sells digital courses, let's say, and so far you've just been like solely focused on Instagram, that's great. But again, you are vulnerable to potential algorithm changes in Instagram, which has happened this year. So you could maybe consider expanding to video on YouTube or written content via an SEO optimized blog, just so all of your traffic isn't tied to just one source. And again, always be getting people on your own email list so you have direct contact with them no matter what happens. Um, And vice versa, if all you focus on, let's say, is SEO, once you get that system sort of nailed in, start thinking about how you can expand and repurpose that content for other platforms like YouTube, Pinterest, etc. 
Trend number three to watch is SEO expanding to other mediums. So amid the election hullabaloo of this year, Instagram temporarily shut down its hashtag feature, and I believe it's yet to return. So who knows what's going to go on with that. But what's arisen instead is the idea of Instagram SEO. So searching by keyword directly within the platform. So right now, if you open your Instagram app and you go to the search thing on the top and you type in just like a word like couch or something or I don't know, maybe couch won't show anything, but because there's not they don't have keywords for every single phrase. But I don't know. I'm going to open up actually my Instagram app right now and test this out. Let's do something nutrition specific. Um, So if I open my Instagram app, I I click the search thing on the bottom and then go to the search tab on the top. What happens if I type in nutrition? Okay, so you type in nutrition and then underneath it's going to give you keyword suggestions for things that people are searching for that use that word. Uh, It doesn't tell you how many people are searching, but enough for it to be something that they think is worth showing up in these first few suggestions. So right now, just right off the top, I typed in nutrition and it says nutrition, nutrition plan, and vegan nutrition. And then there's a see more. So I clicked that and it tells me nutrition expert, nutritional cleansing, nutritional yeast, SciTech nutrition, skin nutrition, pet nutrition, and bodybuilding nutrition. So these are all topics that people are looking for in Instagram. And you can optimize. So these are like keywords, essentially, for Instagram. So I'm going to click on one and see what happens. I clicked on skin nutrition. And it brings up a new feed of posts for people who talk about skin nutrition. And I just clicked on a random one. It's a ISI Natural Skincare page. And their um, caption underneath the image says Daily Doses Skin Nutrition. And it's, I don't know, a post about passion fruit body oil. So that's not really that relevant to skin nutrition. But because they used the words skin nutrition in at the top, probably, of their caption, they showed up ranking for that keyword. So, and this was posted two days ago. So, you know, you can see how this has a lot of potential. So this means potentially that older posts would be able to surface in search if they really meet the needs of the searcher. And that could be a complete game changer for the platform. Because right now it's sort of just like a daily attention getter and you kind of have to keep posting consistently to keep the attention and interacting and engaging. But with this capability, it almost turns into more of like an evergreen search engine, more like Pinterest. And that could help your older content still work for you down the line, which would be great. Um, I'm not sure if it would really drive much traffic to your website since there's not really links in your regular posts, but it would definitely help your brand get consistent eyeballs on it, probably help you increase your following, and then you could engage with them and hopefully get them into your ecosystem outside of just Instagram. So it's not totally clear on how to optimize for this yet. There's no keyword research tools for Instagram, But you can try to optimize by including the words and phrases that you've found in those little, by doing the little search test. So type type topics in and see what comes up. 
Um, try including those words and phrases in the captions of your posts so that your content matches what people might be typing into the search bar so that you might show up when people are looking for those things. And also make sure that you're using these keywords in the alt text on your images, if it makes sense. Um, alt text is important for accessibility for visually impaired people. Uh, that's what screen readers will use to tell someone what an image is about. So in the alt text, you're supposed to describe the image. So as if someone who couldn't see it would know what was there. So like um, baked lasagna in large red bowl or something like that <laughs> like so that the person could visually imagine what's in the picture so if baked lasagna was your keyword then great that fits in naturally um, you don't want to overstuff it but if it fits in naturally use it uh, and that will probably help you show up better in the search results much like it does for google image search um, and previously you were only able to search and find accounts based on the keywords that they used in like their actual account um, handle or their bios. But like I said, now individual posts can show up in the search too. So I think that they're really going to lean into this in the future because it is a great user experience and a good way to capitalize on all the older but highly relevant content that might not have been seen with just hashtags. Uh, similarly, SEO is starting to become a thing for podcasts in Google search. So if you caught my news roundup last month, you know that Google Podcast Manager, which if you run a podcast, you need to be signed up with Google Podcast Manager. They are showing you now what keywords your podcast appears for within Google search and which episodes do the best in Google search as well. And since Google doesn't actually show podcasts in the results for very many keyword queries right now, like if you're just searching for something, it's probably not going to show a podcast in the search results unless you put the word podcast like in the search query. Um, so the data is pretty sparse right now. I shared details on that in that last episode. But the fact that they're even rolling this out tells me that it's something that they hope to focus on and perhaps grow in the future. So if podcasts start showing up for more common keywords, this could be a great source of organic growth for your brand. Um, and at this point, it's unclear what they're looking at when they're deciding to rank a podcast in the search results, like whether they're just looking for keywords in the title or the description, or whether they can actually like listen, quote unquote, to your content. Well, they've said that they can listen and index audio, but um, it's unclear how much they weight that in deciding to show a podcast episode. So it's probably a good idea to try to optimize for keywords in all of those areas, your title, your description, your actual content to cover your bases. So again, kind of using keyword research strategies to even come up with your content in the first place so that as this starts to be a bigger thing, your content's already optimized to show up for search results and you're using your podcast potentially to answer um, common search queries that people might be looking for. Trend number four, increasing focus on user experience. So if you've been following along in the SEO world, you are probably highly aware that in May 2021, Google is officially going to be using something called Core Web Vitals as a part of their ranking algorithm in combination with the user experience signals that they already use, like having HTTPS, so secure website, safe browsing with no malware, uh, no intrusive interstitial pop-ups, which means uh, if you're on mobile, nothing that pops up 
right when someone comes to your site that covers the whole screen. You can get a manual penalty for that right now um, and wanting your site to be mobile friendly. So those things are already part of the ranking algorithm. Um, but they're adding something called core web vitals. And these are three explicit page speed metrics that are going to be used as ranking factors. And of course, site speed right now is already used as a factor, but only in very nebulous terms. Like they've never come out and said exactly what they're looking for when they talk about page speed. And now we know and we can prepare. So they've given us, you know, plenty of time, over a year of forewarning that this is coming out. Um, they just told us the date, so now we know. Uh, and our goal is to analyze our own websites for these metrics and make sure that we are following best practices and are in uh, the, the fastest speed range for these metrics so that it doesn't hurt our rankings and possibly helps us. So the three core web vital metrics are largest contentful paint, LCP, first input delay, FID, and cumulative layout shift, CLS. So let's go through each of those one by one in regular people terms. So largest contentful paint, or LCP, is kind of like how fast your website is loading. It's how long it takes the largest piece of content on the page to actually load and be visible for the user. And they want it to be under two and a half seconds in an ideal world, but anything over four seconds is probably going to hurt you. And they are saying, this is done like kind of page by page on your site, um, but overall for your whole site, they recommend that at least 75% of your pages should meet this, this metric to be considered good. So ideally 75% of your pages should load in, or the first big, the biggest piece of content on the page should load with under two, two and a half seconds. So that's the first metric. The second metric is first input delay. And this is a measure of interactivity. So how long until the website is actually interactive? So we're able to click links or buttons or use a drop-down menu or type text into a form, etc. We want it to be interactive in under 100 milliseconds, ideally. And anything over 300 milliseconds is considered poor. And then the third one is cumulative layout shift or layout stability. Uh, and this has to do with not having the whole page shift around as it loads, because that is not a good user experience. So I'm sure you've all had this happen to you where you're like going to click on something on a website. You're like, oh, this is the button. And then the page finishes loading and the whole thing kind of moves. And as you're clicking, the button moves. And now all of a sudden you're clicking on an ad or something and it opens in a new window and you're like, oh, no, that's so annoying. Now I have to go back and click on the right thing, close this window out. That's what Google is trying to avoid with this metric. So they want you to have very minimal cumulative layout shift. And what most often causes these shifts, um, I'd say nine times out of 10 from what I've seen with just our peers is it's often ad network related. So I'm assuming ad networks are working on this, but um, if the kind of area that they've designated for the ad to load isn't quite the same as the size of the actual ad, it could shift. If you're um, having images load on your page without specifying the dimensions of the image, that can cause it, etc. Um, so how do you know how your website is actually performing for these core web vital metrics? Well, there's a couple ways. Uh, you can go to Google PageSpeed Insights. So if you just Google that, it will take you to a website where you can enter the URL for any page on your site and see how it's performing. It tells you right there. 
You can also see the kind of overall data for your site within Google Search Console. On the left-hand side there, once you're logged in, there's a whole tab for Core Web Vitals, and you can see which pages on your site are good, which pages could maybe use some work, and which pages are actually performing very poorly. Um, ideally, you could get them all to be in the great range. If they're just in the mediocre range, you're probably okay, but try to avoid having them be in like the, the actually poor range if you can. And I don't want you to like overly obsess about this either. Uh, stuff like this, like page speed, is still less important than creating high quality content that actually meets the user's search intent. So um, it still matters, but it's like more of a tiebreaker ranking factor than like the make it or break it. So if you have the world's best answer to a piece of, uh, or the world's best piece of content that very wonderfully addresses the the search query so you're you're very thoroughly answering someone's question based on what they're typing into google even if your site is slow you should still rank at the top because you have the best content you won't lose out to lower quality content on faster sites and vice versa if you have shitty content and you're just ignoring that and just trying to make a fast website that's not going to give you the returns that you're looking for so content is still the most important um, and speed is more like a tiebreaker. So if everybody on page one has equally amazing content, then perhaps working on your page speed will help boost you to the top. It's also relevant for getting featured in the top stories section of Google um, on mobile. So if you look for like a current event, you'll probably see a, like a scrolling section of articles called top stories. Um, but that's not really relevant for most regular bloggers because those are like news outlets usually that fill those spots. Uh, but just FYI, it is a factor for getting into that section as well. And Google has already been testing badges that they're going to show in the search results to kind of um, alert searchers to how the websites in the search results are performing on these user experience metrics. So they have sort of like a page experience icon. So it's a small gray circle with a white star in the middle. And for websites that pass these kind of uh, core web vital page experience metrics and they're performing well, they get that small gray circle with the white star in it to the right side of their URL in the search results. So at the top of your search result listing, it kind of shows the URL that you're about to head to. And to the right of that, right where the AMP sign currently appears, which is just sort of a gray circle with a white lightning bolt in it, um, if you pass the page experience metrics, you'll get that gray circle with a white star. And I've looked for this. It does not show up for me when I'm searching. So it's definitely still being tested and rolled out. Um, but once it is out, I kind of doubt that the average Googler will even really notice or know what it means. So I don't think it's really going to have that much of an impact on click-through rate. But maybe from an SEO perspective and planning perspective, it could be useful perhaps when you're analyzing the SERPs, the search engine result pages, and looking at how the upcoming algorithm update in May 2021 is perhaps influenced by these user experience core web vital metrics. So if more pages with this symbol start to appear on page one, it can maybe help us judge like how important this factor is versus other ranking factors. 
And in some recent Q&As, Google specified that these uh, user experience factors are only going to apply to the mobile index, so the mobile version of your website, which is the main index that Google uses, so not the desktop index. So when you're analyzing your page speed, make sure you're really honing in on the mobile scores because that's going to be the most important. And if you need help with PageSpeed, when my SEO course comes out again, you're free to enroll in 2021. So there should be time in 2021 to get in to my course and learn about this and make these changes before the algorithm update. I have a whole DIY module on this topic, so you can do it yourself for a very affordable price. Or you can pay someone like a company like iMark Interactive. I will include my affiliate link for their services in the show notes. If you go to theunconventionalrd.com slash episode 047, you will find my link to their services. So that company offers a page speed service where they will just go in and try to improve your page speed for you. And I believe it costs about $500 for just that one service, uh, just to put into perspective like, how awesome of a deal my course is. Um, it, it used to, my course, the price is going up, but I was previously charging $590 for my entire course on all SEO things, including PageSpeed. Whereas if you have someone go in and do it for you, it's about $500 just for that one service. Um, but if you are a blogger and you currently have um, Ezoic ads on your site, um, they will not be able to help you based on the way that those ads cache things on your website, I guess they're limited in their ability to help speed it up. Uh, And they also note that if you use the Divi theme, you should expect slower speeds and kind of worse results based on the work uh, that they do on your site because of the way that the theme is coded. Uh, And that's exactly why, even though I built all my sites with the Divi theme, I don't actually recommend it. I did this years ago um, because I purchased a lifetime membership to Divi in like 2010, I want to say, like when they were just starting. And I just happened to have that. So when I was on a budget and just starting out years ago, I built my sites with Divi because that's what I had and I didn't have to spend any more on another theme. Um, But I don't recommend that in today's day and age. It's not the best. Uh, It's too bulky and slow. Uh, So if you go through my free how to start a website tutorial, at theunconventionalrd.com. Just click the how to start a website tutorial link at the top if you want to sign up. But I guide you through how to start an entire WordPress website from scratch. And in that tutorial, I recommend using the Astra theme with the Elementor plugin for most dietitians if you're just wanting to have a, like a private practice website with some articles on it. Um, or if you want to specifically be a food blogger and only a food blogger, then I recommend using the Genesis theme with the Feast plugin uh, to help you optimize your site. So FYI, your theme matters and uh, Divi is slow. So in addition to these core web vitals, if you haven't fully addressed those other aspects of user experience yet, like having HTTPS, not HTTP, um, not having malware on your website, Uh, not using intrusive interstitial pop-ups, and making sure your site is mobile-friendly, so responsive, like it resizes and reformats itself when you look at it on mobile instead of having to like zoom in with your fingers. Um, Make sure that you take time to improve all of those metrics too, because those already matter and will continue to matter in 2021. And then beyond that, like just take a holistic look at your website from a UX standpoint, like a user experience standpoint, Is it a pleasant, easy to navigate space with content that's accessible and clear? 
And if not, what can you improve? And beyond just Google's algorithm, having an accessible website is more important than ever. Just like in-person businesses need to make their storefronts accessible to people with physical disabilities, websites need to do the same. So there are some great resources about website accessibility at a website called webaim.org. And they talk all about web accessibility, including checklists of things that you can do to make your website fully accessible. And this is something you need to do to be legally compliant as a website owner. And things you'll be looking at are like using alt text on your images so that people who use screen readers can understand what you're talking about with those images, uh, captions for your videos, large enough font size, and proper contrast between colors on your website. So this is definitely something that you should work into your 2021 plans because yes, I don't wanna scare you, but bloggers, including people like food bloggers, can and have been sued over accessibility issues. So, um, I mean, it's unlikely that you would be somebody targeted, most likely, but it should be on your radar and you should maybe also check with your business insurance um, to see if they would cover you in the event that you got sued for an accessibility-related claim. Trend number five is around audio. I think audio is going to continue to gain traction in 2021. And the reason I think this is because of all the stuff that I've seen um, with Google playing around with making podcasts more visible in their search results and saying that they can index audio content now. Um, Spotify has been pouring a ton of money into podcasts. So I think that, that they're gonna be an even bigger player in the years to come. Uh, I'm excited to see perhaps if podcast ad networks become a thing in the future like we kind of have on blogs today. I don't think this will happen in 2021, but just something to maybe keep an eye on if there's like baby steps towards it. Uh, so just like we used to have to manually place ads on blogs, uh, but now we have sophisticated ad networks that serve up the ads automatically, I think the same thing will eventually happen in the podcasting space to where you don't have to like manually connect with advertisers and then manually place the ad in your in your episode. I think eventually there will be automated podcast advertising and we'll get paid in a similar model as display advertising like per listen or per, you know, some, some sort of rate per 1,000 listens, that type of thing. Um, the reason it's a little hindered right now is because with podcasting, it's not like streaming. Like it's not, you can't tell when someone's like actually listening to your podcast at this very moment in the same way that you can with website visitors. Um, instead, podcasts are more, they're downloaded to your device. So we measure downloads for podcasts, not really technically listens. Um, and so if someone clicks the subscribe button to your podcast, when you come out with a new episode, their device will automatically download it. And that counts as a download number, whether they actually listen to it or not. Um, so that's why it's a little difficult to show advertisers like the value because just because someone downloaded doesn't necessarily mean they listened. And then it's difficult to track the performance of their ads in different uh, episodes. So I can see this evolving in the future. I don't know how exactly, but I bet it will become a thing. And like I already mentioned, I think podcast search is going to become a thing in the future. Um, again, Google Podcast Manager is finally showing you how your podcasts are being discovered in search. Maybe in the future there will be like podcast keyword research, which would be super fun. Um, 
And if you're thinking about whether or not 2021 is the right time to start a podcast, maybe, but I think it depends on your goals. And I think it's really important to understand your goals before you dive in. So since I've been doing this for basically a year now, I have discovered that I think podcasting is a really great value add to an existing audience, but not really a great way to grow a brand new audience from nothing. And that's because there's not really a good way to search for podcasts or episodes. So it's it's a lot harder to get organic growth. Like there are other strategies that you can use, like going on other people's podcasts to spread the word and stuff like that. Um, but there, that's not as passive as like targeting a keyword, creating content around it, and then just like letting the people come to you like you can with blogging. So if you already have an audience elsewhere, like on social media, or you get a lot of blog traffic, or you have a really solid and engaged email list, um, and you want to become a thought leader in your space, uh, and especially if you're selling something of your own to your audience, like products or services, uh, it can, in that scenario, really help establish trust and build a relationship with you and your audience and boost sales. But if your kind of business model doesn't align with that, if you don't really care about being a thought leader, you don't have a course or a service to offer, and you more want to be a content creator, then I kind of think you shouldn't start a podcast and you should just double down on creating content for your website so that you can get more ad revenue and earn more money with affiliate links and uh, maybe do uh, other types of digital goods that don't require as much you know, trust and connection between you and other individuals. So I wouldn't probably focus on a podcast if that's the business model you're going after. So it depends, but just wanted to mention audio as a trend for 2021 because I do think, you know, there's 12 months in 2021 and I bet we'll see some exciting innovation at some point in the year. And number six continued focus on search intent. So an even greater shift away from just thinking about keywords and really focusing on meeting search intent. So this is related to Google search. You know, in the past, it used to be all about finding exact keyword phrases and kind of targeting those in the title of your content, in your headings, etc. But Google is getting smarter and it, they're not so basic now as to just look for an exact phrase in your content. What they're doing with their algorithms is really trying to understand what someone really wants when they're searching for something. So they are getting better at understanding the deeper meaning and the deeper search intent behind a search query. And we need to adapt to that as content creators. So here's an example. If someone's searching for how to change a tire, change a tire tutorial, and change a tire instructions, all the people searching for those three things are really kind of looking for the same thing, right? They want to know how to change a tire and they want someone to show them how. So in the past, those three different phrases might have surfaced different results in the search engine result pages, the SERPs. Um, but the intent behind them is the same. So I think as Google gets smarter and their algorithm gets uh, better at understanding intent, we're going to see some consolidation in the SERPs. So the highest quality content is probably going to come out on top across all those different queries, even if they don't have an exact match keyword. So if I were you, I'd look for this in the search engine results as you're kind of perusing the keywords and doing your keyword research. If someone is at the top of page one 
even though they're not using the exact keyword, but when you click on their link, they really are doing an amazing job of satisfying the user intent, then you should be thinking, okay, I'm probably not gonna outrank this person simply by using the exact match keyword because Google understands that this piece of content is really doing a great job uh, you know, meeting the needs of this person who's searching. So yes, keywords are important. You should still use them, sprinkle them throughout your content, but satisfying the user intent is really the most important. And uh, that can help you rise to the top, I think, above all right now. So I would focus on creating deep content hubs on your website around certain niche topics. So pick a few topics that you wanna go in depth on on your website and build out really solid content around those topics where you're kind of probably going to be using related keywords in in sort of a hub there that will help you rank better for all of those queries and all of those topics versus going super broad on your site and not really showing authority in any given area so that's my recommendation for 2021 with content creation and the last value value number seven that i wanted to end with today is the importance of value-based businesses. So with everything that's happened in 2020, the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, the election, people are increasingly wanting to align with companies that share their values. So for solopreneurs and small teams, this requires some introspection on the part of the business owner. Your company's values are really an extension of your own values. So take the time to really figure out what your values are and how you can infuse those into your business. Having values is kind of like giving your business a rudder. It helps steer the ship. If you're unclear on your values, then you're going to be like flailing all over the place and facing uncertainty and overthinking around every corner and with every decision. Having core values helps you make decisions more effectively because you can always double back to them and say, hey, is this in alignment with our values? If yes, great. If no, let's not do that or let's change the way that we're doing that. And don't rush into this exercise or do it in an inauthentic way because you want to like follow the trends or something like that. Like that's not going to work and that's going to actually probably come back to bite you in the butt if your words and actions don't align because you didn't really mean them. So when you've actually done the work, so don't jump into this too quickly, take the time to do the work and figure out your values. And then when you really feel confident in what you believe in and stand behind, then you can sit down and plan out action steps for making sure that those values are coming through in your business. Things like making sure that your team and any events that you put on are diverse and inclusive donating money or fundraising for certain causes throughout the year, treating your employees in a certain way, or creating a company culture that matches your values, or creating content that makes your values clear, like Ben and Jerry's and their justice for all ice cream flavor. And even consider publishing your values on your website for everyone to see, and even maybe the ways that you've been embodying these values or how you plan to embody these values in the future. All of that can really help attract the right people to you who vibe with you and are on the same page. And I don't know about you, but you know, when I see businesses that really do embody my values, I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. And it makes me want to support them even more. Um, and again, you're not going to please everyone. So I think part of the hesitancy that can come up with this is wanting to people please and um, being afraid of 
people who don't share the same values like coming at you but that's why you need to do the inner work and you need to be confident and secure in your values before you go through and like publish them on your website for example because if you have any doubt inside of you that's going to cause problems as well so I might do a podcast episode on this in the future because it's really important and something that I've personally been working on in 2020 and um, you know maybe I could share some of what I've been doing and action steps that might help you guys as well. Uh, So to recap the uh, seven different digital marketing trends to watch in 2021. Number one was transitioning to a cookie-less world and to watch out for you know how your ad revenue and your affiliate income might fluctuate based on that. Trend number two Double down on the importance of multiple revenue streams. So since we know that, you know, things like display ads and uh, ad retargeting and things like that are going to fluctuate in 2021, be prepared for that and start thinking now about how you can diversify your income streams so that if one of these streams is negatively impacted, it's not going to really significantly hurt your business. Trend number three, watch for SEO to expand to other mediums. So Instagram SEO and podcast SEO might be things that start to emerge in 2021. Trend number four, increasing focus on user experience. So making sure that your website is fast, that it's meeting all those core web vital metrics and all of the other page experience metrics that Google really focuses on. Um, as well as making sure that your website is accessible for all. Trend number five, pay attention to audio and the the traction that audio might be gaining in 2021. And continue to focus on search intent when you create content on your blog. That's trend number six. Uh, We want to make sure that above all, we are creating content that meets what people are looking for when they type something into the Google search bar, and we're not just focusing on, you know, keyword variations, for example. And trend number seven, highlighting the importance of value-based businesses. So really taking the time to figure out your values and infuse those into your business once you have them nailed down. So that's it. That's my seven uh, digital marketing trends to watch in 2021. And as always, if you're listening and you have not clicked the subscribe button yet, please do so on whatever platform you're listening on so you can continue to get the new episodes as they come out. And if you're not already in my free Facebook group, just search for the Unconventional RD community on Facebook and request to join. It's a great space to talk about business and cheer each other on. So I will see you there and catch you next week for next week's episode.